This podcast is a production of Queen's Public Television in New York City. Visit us on the web at qptv.org. Hey, I'm Mark Bacino, and this is Queen's Creative. Welcome to another installment of the Queen's Creative Podcast, coming to you from Queen's Public Television in New York City. Big thanks to everyone out there listening for joining us. On today's pod, I welcome the fabulous country singer-songwriter, radio DJ, and Jackson Heights, Queens resident, Laura Cantrell. A favorite of famed British DJ John Peel and music legend Elvis Costello, the Nashville-born Miss Cantrell has five album releases to her credit as an artist and has showcased her talents as a guest on such iconic programs as A Prairie Home Companion and The Grand Old Opry. And if that wasn't enough for you, in addition to her work as an artist, Laura is also an acclaimed DJ, creator of the long-running radio thrift shop on local New York area radio, and more recently, host of the program's Dark Horse Radio and States of Country on satellite and streaming radio, respectively. Listen in on this episode as Laura and I discuss Laura's Nashville beginnings, her music, her love of radio, what it was like to sing with Elvis Costello, and much more. Then, after our talk, be sure and stick around as Laura treats us to a special live performance from our home here in New York City. All right, let's get to it and jump into my fun conversation with the great Miss Laura Cantrell. So, hey, Laura, welcome to Queen's Creative. Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Mark, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So, I just wanted to dive right in and talk about a bunch of stuff with you. But for starters, I wanted to discuss your backstory. Um, you're a longtime New Yorker, currently living in Queens, but you're originally from Nashville. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Tennessee? Sure. Um, I did grow up in Nashville, which is, you know, people I think are more familiar with the city of Nashville than they used to be. When I would say I was from Nashville, they, you know, it always kind of conjures up some country music associations for people who maybe know music um you know in the last few years there's been a tv show about nashville and uh you know country music is even more kind of mainstream pop than it used to be so i feel like people have more of an idea you know it's more of a tourist destination now uh i noticed when um i worked to have a finance job and i have for many years it's kind of my rent paying job and there were some there's a group of women um in our sales department who were planning a bachelorette uh getaway to nashville and that's when i knew that <laughs> that it was taking on a different you know sort of awareness people were having of it outside of, of the, the city than it used to be um but growing up there was it was very cool it was much like growing up in any any sort of small or mid-sized city um i uh you know, went to Catholic school. My parents were in the legal profession. My dad was a judge and my mom was a lawyer and a judge. And um, so, you know, I kind of grew up around the courthouse and their doings when I was a little kid. Uh, but both of them really loved music and they're actually 10 years apart in age. My dad's oh, wow. 10 years older than my mom. So his ta- musical taste was very old fashioned, even for someone of his generation. He's 86 now. But he loved like music of the 20s and 30s and 
old um, hit parade and mm-hmm. very early Grand Ole Opry and bluegrass and stuff like that. My mom was a more typical, like, you know, child of the 60s <laughs> who, um, the, or who came of age in the 60s. So she loved Joan Baez and folk era stuff and a lot of like rock and roll of, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. So it's a good, you know, we it's had, a good mix. It was a good mix in the house. And there were some, you know, points and artists that they both shared that they appreciated. Um, you know, they both loved Johnny Cash and, uh, you know, my dad, for whatever reason, uh, had a like likes Pete Seeger. And so, you know, that was something my mom, my mom uh, also could relate to. Yeah, they could connect on those. On right. That on level, that yeah. stuff. So, cool. yeah, it was. And, and, and they also love show tunes and shows. And, um, you know, so we had a lot of different musical stuff going on in my house from a young age. And that was just like a particular to my family, but I'm very grateful because that's where my, you know, the roots of my own music interest, I think, really begin. Right, right. Yeah, I see. And you're, so you're, you're a survivor of Catholic school like myself. That's, <laughs> that's cool. Yes. <laughs> I caught that. Um, yeah. And, and actually you lead right into my next question really, which was, um, you know, obviously Nashville is a, is a huge music town, but um, it's sort of, you sort of semi-answered it being that your folks were interested in, in, different types of music. Um, but I was curious to ask how you got your music bug, meaning, you know, how did you start to get the interest uh, in terms of playing and singing and that kind of thing? Well, I actually, um, t- I took piano lessons and I was, a, a, you know, kind of, I don't know, seven or eight years of piano. I wasn't super, um, I always loved it, but I wasn't, uh, I actually switched teachers when I was just going into high school and that my new teacher was more serious and kind of pushing theory and uh, or or not not mm-hmm. that I I had learned theory but they were pushing what you could do with it so teaching improvisation and and it was right at the moment when I was starting to like just be have a more social life of my own and stuff and I kind of that's what I've always regretted like not hanging in there because um with with you know that level of um music education I kind of stopped um because I realized later when I was in college and I was starting to play guitar and that some of that music, more technical background would have been useful because I had more serious, like I wanted to be good at uh, an instrument and to be able to walk into a room of musicians and be able to play with them. And so yeah. it took me, I had to kind of coach myself and do some, you know, extra woodshedding to get to where I could play comfortably with a band and not just be the girl singer, you know, <laughs> but actually, you know, hang out and, and play in a band. And that's, I, I've... Um, you know, started doing that when I was in college. Um, I always was interested in music. Um, and actually, I, unfortunately, like my school system, they didn't actually have a lot of music. Uh, ironically, for Nashville, it wasn't a big part of it, our music, our, our education. So, you know, there weren't opportunities to like be in a, you know, ensemble or something. I did sing in the choir at church and that kind of stuff. But it wasn't really until I got to New York and um, I realized that I was kind of a, I'd already somewhat hung around with music loving kids. And, um, you know, I had worked at the Country Music Hall of Fame as a, as a tour guide. So I had some background knowledge about the history of country music, which I, coming to New York to go to school, I often just played that. That was like my party trick <laughs> when right. you're just getting to know people. I was the Southern girl who worked at the Country Music Hall of Fame and could tell them all about, you know, Dolly Parton or right. <laughs> Kitty Wells or whatever. Right. Um, and, but 
But coming to Columbia, I realized, and I was very lucky to fall in with the um, kids at the campus radio station because there were some really serious music um, loving and sort of people who were going to, whether they worked professionally in music or not, were going to always be like serious music fans. It was like to a different level of mm-hmm, seriousness. Mm-hmm. And I realized like I kind of fell into that camp and I gravitated towards people who had that, um, you know, kind of serious appreciation. And, um, you know, that was probably, those were probably the first people that I played music with. Um, really? you know, oh, were wow. kids from the campus radio station. We had a little, couple little side bands, you know, just really for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I would always be the most, you know, kind of the person in whatever informal group was the most excited to maybe try to get a real gig or to get <laughs> right. or to play shows. You know, it wasn't so I realized I was a little bit more um, I enjoyed all those aspects of it and was more ambitious right. to actually turn it into something that I could do more you know, it was, I wasn't even thinking about professionally, but I was thinking mm-hmm. about it being just being good at it and being serious about it. Now, you weren't like playing it. So you weren't playing in like a high school garage band or anything like that. You you never no. did. That's interesting. I, d- wow. I did hang around. I had a couple of friends who had bands, um, but because my my instrument and, you know, had been piano, I didn't really know how to be a keyboard right. player or you know right. like or and I didn't I couldn't play guitar so I had to I had to kind of figure that out when I got to college and I oh I see you know see. so yeah wow that's that's it and, and I I share with you the regret of not finishing studying music proper I mean I've been you know making music for years like you and 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 making records and stuff and and just yeah I wish I would have like stuck it out in terms of the theory side of things. Like I just totally abandoned that and never, never went further with it. But you know, you you do what you can. <laughs> right. Well, and also you get you have a whole lifetime to work on this stuff. So you know, I realized like, wow, it's a bummer. I bailed on um, you know improvisation in high school because that probably once I that to me was the first thing that didn't totally come naturally. You know, mm-hmm, as a mm-hmm. uh, you know just in terms of what I'd already done on piano so I was a little intimidated by it and I just backed away from it and I realized later like well you know you don't ever get better if you by backing away so you have to kind of go back and and um, into it yeah yeah address it and and (laughs) and and work your way through it so um it's interesting because now I have my daughter is uh 14 and she's a freshman at LaGuardia and she plays cello and so watching her as a cello student um you know, really continue to be, I mean, there've been many points where I thought like I probably would have quit <laughs> at that point, <laughs> right. but she's yeah. continued to, she's sticking to grow with it. and stick with it. It's really, it's been really great. Yeah. It's funny how kids do that. Like my son is, is also majoring in music in high school and he's, but he's a drummer. And so he's <laughs> doing all this technical stuff with, you know, reading and paradiddles and he's learning to read. And, and, and I'm like, well, it's great that you're doing that. You know, it's like, just stick with it. Don't, you know, there was, I could see that point where he wanted to throw in the towel and then, and then it was like, he kind of pushed his way through it. And now he's, now he's actually into it, you know? So it's a, it's an interesting thing. Now you had said, you'd mentioned college and that was what I wanted. I wanted to ask you about that because I was, I was curious about that. So sort of jumping forward, um, you know, you come to New York city, uh, to attend Columbia University. And from what I read, it really seems like, and from what you're saying, you really kind of hit the ground running um, 
artistically speaking, like you're DJing uh, on the college radio station, you're singing in an indie rock band, like with with Mac McGowan of Superchunk. (laughs) And uh, it really sounds like you're having a lot of fun. Um, It sounds like it's a creative time for you. So what was that like coming to New York from Nashville? What was that experience like for you? I know you touched on it, but maybe you could explain a little more about it. Well, it was pretty interesting. I, I think I had a very common experience where, you know, you if you when I was leaving this sort of southern culture coming to New York and I hadn't really thought a lot in high school about I mean, I'd read, you know, some southern authors and I knew I liked country music, but I hadn't thought about it in a different way where, you know, with the remove of not being inside of it anymore, you get a, a perspective on huh, what is what is that? about country music that I really like, you know, what is it Mm -hmm. that makes me want to continue to sort of study it and be studious about it. Um, And so fortunately, I just was lucky. Columbia was a great environment. Um, It didn't matter, uh, you know, what you were studying. There were just a lot of creative people there, a lot, obviously a lot of very bright people. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was a really vibrant environment. And uh, there was... um, uh, you know, because we weren't, I think it's a little different than like NYU kids are down in the midst of downtown. So right, they, right. they'd all get to go out in the city. But in Columbia, mm-hmm. you're sort of up in a little bubble of... You're ensconced you know, up there. Yeah. Up there at the Upper West Side. And, you know, it takes a few years to orient yourself to where, you know, where what else is in New York City. So I think, you know, there was this kind of like sort of uh, kind of just communing with the other students and having our own little scene yeah of just what you know listening to records in dorm rooms and and the radio station and hanging out late and you know you're sort of reading uh for whatever your courses are and listening to music and uh you know it just was a great it was a great um time to kind of immerse myself and that was when I really realized I had a serious interest in country music and the history of it and in my own you know I realized pretty quickly that I wanted to um, you know, I admired songwriting and I, I thought that that would be, um, you know, an interesting th- thing to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I definitely had to teach myself. I wasn't like you mentioned, Mac, my friend, Mac McCon, he, uh, was writing songs, you know, out of the gate and had, you know, came to Columbia with a bunch of <laughs> records that he'd already played on and, right. and pressed himself and was quite the indie musician, but it was also kind of a great do it yourself moment. Like there was this like, this feeling like, well, you, you don't have to be affiliated with some, a publisher or a label or a, um, you know, you can just make, make up your own song and record it yourself and do something with it yourself. And so that was kind of a little ethos that was in the air at the time. And, um, you know, I just, I definitely thrived in that creative environment. And, um, I took, I think I did take some, maybe modeled myself in a way after some of the other, you know, there's so many people at, at, Columbia and WKCR particularly who were interested in the history of jazz and they were very seriously linking like history of jazz and the you know records that were recorded with sort of an outer um, you know what else is going on in the culture at the time Mm -hmm. and Mm so um, it's almost like an anthropological way of of looking at um, you know or a social social studies kind of way of um, viewing the music and music culture as it comes out of the the wider culture so you know i started thinking about country music that way and wanting to um you know connect it i I knew that like um you know from being up at columbia for instance 
you know, we would have these big um, jazz festivals on the radio. Mm -hmm. And so, and it would be like the, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong birthday broadcast for four days or something. Or we did a Bessie Smith one while I was there. And, you know, Bessie Smith was from Tennessee and grew up Mm -hmm. in Chattanooga and had been part of this Southern music circuit before she made her way to New York. And, um, you know, a lot of the other artists that I knew just from my growing up, you know, my family were fans of Kitty Wells and some of the other, uh, you know, older female singers of country music. And it made me start to think like, well, while these people are all like, they're not from, from very far from one another, what's the connection between them and their music? Is there any, or is it, is there pointedly right. not a connection? So mm-hmm. that's kind of just an interest that I had starting to try to link the country music to the other adjacent, uh, you know, genres of music genres, and to see how they might've all, you know, um, not been that far away from each other. Categorically, we think of them as very separate, but, um, but, is that because of our own, you know, um, uh, you know, segregation of society. Yeah, our own musical segregation. Right. 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 So, and, uh, and, and, and in a bigger sense in the society. Right. Right. So that's all stuff that was just, I still find myself, obviously, just in the last year, we've been asking those questions and talking about that a lot. Um, on sure. my, my, uh, I have a streaming show now on, um, uh, it's, you know, it's a streaming app, but, um, you know, during starting, you know, in the, the, um, you know, late spring with all of the social justice protests, I was mm-hmm. like, wow, it really is kind of crazy. Like that there are only, um, you know, only two or three, successful country artists ever that have been black you know what right what right. what's what, that about what if you kind of the answer is pretty obvious you know some people decided that right, right. It wasn't, they, they weren't interested in selling you know music for black artists to to what they think of as a white audience so it's you know again like just amazing to me um you know you, you can take a topic that is seemingly as um you know maybe not to is, is for recreation, country music, mm-hmm. you know, it's just something we do when we relax, whatever. For fun, it's, yeah. But uh, but actually it connects very directly to these really burning questions that are happening right now in our society and why why are things the, for sure. why things are the way they are. So so anyway, that that's I'm not sure what your question was, but <laughs> maybe just by having started pondering all this stuff up at Columbia, you know, we've continued to you know, think about it. And, yeah, you, and, it set you on a path to continue thinking right. along those lines. You know, it's f- fascinating to me. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea that, you know, your love of country music was cemented not, I mean, obviously the roots are there in Nashville, but your idea to sort of commit yourself further to country music and uh, and songwriting and all that happened in New York rather than, you know, uh, you know, when, when you're at home. It's kind right. of... Uh, yeah, it's interesting, but maybe you need that perspective to come out of it and to kind of be like, okay, I, I always love this stuff, but now maybe I want to do this as an artist, you know? And Well, I think some of that also had to do with meeting, you know, a lot of other music characters, um, you know, from all the musicians that I've, you know, been able to be acquainted with here, but also, um, you know, writers like Nick Toshis and, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, who I got to meet when I was a DJ at KCR at Columbia. Um, and his writing about country music and blues and um, all the different strains of hillbilly music and 
uh, sort of African-American rural music going into the blues and how they were, you know, he just wrote about it all as if it was like one, just threads from one mm-hmm. tapestry. Right. And, um, and, and also not just with an American centric, but going back to looking at, you know, how does this link to older literature and, and oral, you know, oral traditions versus recorded traditions and all of this stuff. Right. So, um, you know, that, that was inspiring stuff that maybe in Nashville, you would bump into people who had, uh, you know, had, uh, similar thoughts, but the, I think the commercialism of the just the Nashville being the business center for country music turns mm-hmm. all, you know, right. perspectives towards, well, what can we sell? <laughs> you know, yeah, or, towards the money game, right? Or, or are you, you, oh, do you want to be an artist? Well, then how, you know, what, how are we going to market you? You know, like that kind right. of um, thinking that I just, I, I never, you know, my interest was really always in this more esoteric, like, mm-hmm. you know, what's this really about? And not so much in how to, um, you know, how to market music or sell music. So in a way, you know, that makes me a little bit of an odd duck for Nashville. <laughs> but it's and, a, in a good way, though. That's yeah, good. you know. So I, I was curious. I I, I was, we're definitely going to dive further into the music, but I, since we're sort of at the college juncture here for you, I wanted to sort of ask this left field question. Um, when you leave college, uh, I was really curious to ask this. Uh, after college, you sort of take on a successful ongoing parallel career, uh, a gig in, in the world of finance. Um, so as such, I was kind of wondering how you managed to sort of adeptly balance the two very different worlds, you know, the business and the art thing, um, the left brain, right brain kind of thing. Uh, I was, you know, usually, you know, musicians are notoriously bad <laughs> with money, <laughs> you know? So I was right. curious how you balanced those two things. Uh, well, I will successfully say, as you've done. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, go ahead. You know, my, so I did, I had a sort of classic New York experience when I graduated from school. Um, I had to, if I, you know, it was very clear from my family. They were like, we love it that you want to stay in New York, but you're going to have to pay for yourself to stay in New York. <laughs> so I had to work and I, I, you know, had a couple of jobs um, that I didn't think of as career jobs that were just like, how do I get to pay my rent in New York so I can stay here and and continue, mm-hmm. you know, being, you know, being involved in these things that I'm interested in. And so, uh, you know, eventually I ended up, you know, I probably had like a, a couple of temp jobs, you know, accidentally okay. in Wall Street firms. So it wasn't really like any kind of planned thing. Although I did notice when I was finally offered a role for, I worked with an equity research firm um, that did mm-hmm. like, it was a little investment bank boutique that had a research division. And I had been temping in the research division and they were always like, oh, this we have a temp here is from Columbia. <laughs> you know? <And> so <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, um, you know, I mean, I wasn't certainly doing anything that was um, high finance at all. It was more like filling out spreadsheets and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, clerical work. But um, they offered me a job and I realized because I'd, I'd sort of been keeping tabs on other full time work that you could get. And it was more it was slightly more money than if you then if you got a similar job, an entry-level job in a publishing company yeah. or an advertising yeah. firm or whatever, and it was enough that I could pay my rent and also have a little extra to play with with music stuff. And so, you know, if I wanted to buy a new guitar, 
all right, I could cover it, you know, or right, I sure. had enough to, you know, put away towards that. So, so I took that really just out of that, um, you know, it just uh, filled the need of needing to pay the rent. But what right. I found after I was there was that, you know, we have these um, stereotypes of different businesses and what they're like. And, um, you know, it, there were just a lot of very young, smart people who mm-hmm. worked in the industry and not all of them stayed, but, um, you know, some would go on to have like high flying financial careers and some would, it was just a stop on, you know, towards going to grad school or whatever. But um, for me, it was just a consistent way to continue to make a living and be able to stay here. And then as I started doing, got involved in community radio and had the radio thrift shop, you know, it funded all of those things, including mm-hmm. my first few bands where, you know, when I realized right. like, okay, if you want a drummer who can play country shuffle in New York city, you're going to have to hire one. <laughs> you, you have know? to pay so for one. Yeah. I have to pay. Yeah. It's not like in college where everybody just do it, did it for the fun of it, you know, for you the had fun to, of it. Exactly. Um, so, you know, it, that was my, um, you know, sort of reasoning all along the way. Now I did leave, um, working, uh, for full-time, uh, for a finance company, uh, in the early two thousands when I was, um, touring a lot and, um, starting to get opportunities to travel. And then I, until after my daughter, um, was born, she was probably four when I went back to work Mm part-time. So I... I kind of, you know, have dipped in and out of it as necessary, but right. I do think that there, for me, and this is just, you know, other people wouldn't feel it this way about it, but there was a certain freedom in not having to, you know, pay my mortgage or my rent out of earning music for, you know, yes. earning money that I'd earned from music because it's so, I mean, it's only gotten in this 25 years <laughs> since I got my first Wall Street job, you know, it's only gotten that much harder to make money make, for sure know, in the music business. So, and in fact, many musicians, you know, when I got started, I had knew so many people who played music, you know, they had gigs every day and there were venues and restaurants that had, you know, musicians come mm-hmm. and just play for their, you know, the patrons in the restaurant or something. You get those kind of gigs. Those are, you know, now that every place has like Pandora piped in or whatever, you don't need right. live right. music as much yeah, as you It's a shame. To. So, um, you know, I, for me, the, the, there was a freedom in not having to pay the bills that way that helped my creativity for other people the lack of time the sacrificing your the time that you get give over to a full-time job would hurt what they were doing and i understand that and i felt frustrated with that myself but for me that freedom to say this isn't you know i'm not writing this song because i'm trying to pay the rent you know so right yeah there's something to be said for that yeah yeah Yeah, i mean it it I, I, you hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't have a plan B, you know, uh, I hear a lot of musicians say that, but you know, I, I did a similar thing to you working in television for many years, uh, while I was working on music and making records and it's just like, yeah, there's a certain, you know, they don't talk about that, that there's a certain sense of security that you, you know, that you do have with that kind of a day gig where you can, um, you know, just be like, yeah, I, I can pay my bills and work on my music and not right. be worrying about starving. So um, right. it's interesting, but uh, it's interesting that you balance that. Now, you had mentioned in the early 2000s, um, you know, when you kind of left, when when things were starting to happen for you, uh, I wanted to talk about 
your debut record, Not the Trembling Kind, um, that was released in 2000 and made you know quite a splash. It garnered a good deal of uh, critical acclaim and sort of captured the attention of folks like Elvis Costello and legendary English DJ John Peel. Um, can you talk a little bit about those songs and how that record project came to be? Sure. Um, the Not the Term One Kind record was um, songs that I'd written myself and then songs that I had kind of collected um, while I was doing the radio thrift shop on WFMU in New Jersey. Um, I would play local bands. I had a lot of local artists that I tried to support and do gig announcements for them and what have you and play their recordings. And so I had a bunch of songs that I knew from my radio work that I had started performing in my own shows when I would play. And so when it came time to make a record, I had like, you know, probably four or five years worth of songs that I'd learned that, um, that I hadn't written myself, but that sort of suited my personality and that I'd already been able to um, kind of work out in my local gigs. You know, I probably mm -hmm. played once a month, you know, some Lakeside Lounge or Brownies or Mercury or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there were some really winning songs in that, that first group of songs that um, I recorded, like uh, Amy Allison's uh, Brilliant, The Whiskey Makes You Sweeter. Right, that's a great tune. I Beautiful love your version song. of it. Yeah. Um, uh, that I've, I, I, when, when I first saw Amy, I was like, wow, this is Mose Allison's daughter. And here she is <laughs> in like a thrift store dress with this. She had a band called The Maudlins. And they were just charmingly like kind of um, delicate in their playing. And, and uh, she had the amazing song after amazing song. And uh, Whiskey Makes You Sweeter was m probably my favorite of my f the first batch mm -hmm. of songs of hers that I was aware of. Um, but also stuff like George Usher's song, Not the Trembling Kind, that song right. itself. Um, you know, it had just this great um, blend of, it almost sounded like 60s pop to me, mm -hmm. uh, but it the, but that could be sort of folk rock, you know, like kind of twangy, um, but jangly, twangy. Um, yeah, he's interesting. Like he's an old, he's a label mate of mine. We were both on Parasol together. Oh, he's a great. Wow. He's, he's a great... Uh, He's a great songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. I love really, that tune. Really great writer. And so I had co-opted those songs basically into my <laughs> own live show. And then I had this handful of my own tunes like Queen of the Coast um, that, you know, was a song I wrote about Bonnie Owens. It really does kind of give maybe a sense of, of um, where I was at. Like, you know, I'm I'm sort of a history nerd for the women of country music and uh, but I'd seen in Bonnie this character that had this sort of pathos of having been, you know, uh, married to more famous artists and supported them mm -hmm. and eclipsed by them in terms of fame and of opportunities and what have you and had taken care of their families and all of these things. And so I, you know, wanted to I had loaded all that into the song Queen of the Coast. So, you know, there were I knew that I felt confident about my few songs, but I didn't have you know, 15 more of them, <laughs> my own things written. So I had to draw on these other songs that I knew would, um, would sound great on an album. And fortunately, um, that, uh, you know, the group of songs itself, and I think the playing, which was all my local band, um, mm -hmm. Jay Sherman Godfrey, John Graboff, um, Jeremy Chatsky, and, mm -hmm. uh, 
Will Rigby from the DBs was played DB, drums. Sure. That was kind of the core band. And we just got, I think we got really lucky that, um, you know, we all were sort of into it and kind of captured the the fairy dust of the moment of <laughs> right, feeling right. like excited about those songs and about the potential for them. And I was very much, uh, I did not know what I was doing. I, you know, when I <laughs> hear some of the songs and the way Sounds I sang like them. <laughs> well, it's funny because I feel like I listen to them and I go, oh my God, that vocal's so stiff. Know. You know, I'm just sound hard. like. <laughs> it's hard to listen to yourself. You can't listen to your own records. It, it makes you like without, isn't it, isn't that terrible that you can't listen to your own yeah, stuff without pretty, thinking that? It's pretty, um, yeah, you can be pretty embarrassed. But but um, what it, what's interesting, you know, we had uh, an opportunity to put them out on a little label in Scotland. Mm. And um, I did not know. Uh, that to me was absolutely, um, I, a, I had no idea whether that would be, um, you know, would mean I'd get to travel over there and perform. I really didn't know. I just knew it would mm -hmm. come out. And I, I was struggling a bit in the U.S., and, and, and around New York, I was known as the DJ for the radio thrift shop. So I, I was kind of like, I tell people I do, mm -hmm. a, you know, I do my own music and they would be right. like, kind of, it's kind of like a little dismissive, like, oh yeah, how cute the DJ has, right, right. <laughs> has her own record. Um, so I, I had felt like I wasn't getting taken seriously. So I knew that if I put a record out, at least it would be out on a label and it would be mm -hmm. something that maybe would help me just get better gigs. Like I didn't know what it would amount to i what i hadn't counted on is that because the um uh label which was based in glasgow it was called shoeshine records fit and polish was the americana imprint of shoeshine <laughs> and it was all run by francis mcdonald from the band teenage fan club and i didn't right. realize that a they have art support grants um for mm -hmm. businesses like that so um francis was getting some uh support to help market the records and um, there would, I did, I had no idea of what the nationalized media would, would mean. So, you know, I just thought I, I, it never once occurred to me that John Peel would ever hear it or play it. Uh, I was going to ask you about that next. Yeah. That's uh, amazing, but go on. Well, just yeah. that, that, that's it. Like I, I was, you know, very pleasantly surprised that, uh, you know, because they were working it to all the national media in the UK. And of course, it's a sm much smaller system than we have in the Euro US. So there's not really th anything analogous to mm -hmm. maybe it would be like getting it on local radio in a big city. And, and right. Us. But but, um, you know, there were these national programs with a really up and down the country reach, like the Bob Harris country program on Radio 2 and the John Peel program on Radio 1. And they both got behind it and played it. And in Peel's case, he, I think because I had, he didn't know at first that I was a DJ, but, could, but I think because I had that DJ sensibility of like, I picked like my favorite songs from other <laughs> right. records and I put them together in a set list that I knew that that, that running order was solid. And he really responded he to that. Yeah, yeah. And um, it became like a record that he played a lot and talked about a lot. We were in his festive 50. I think, you know, we we're I don't know where exactly we were in it, but a couple of songs were in the Festa 50. It was, was amazing. It was like, I went, you know, I'm sitting behind my desk at Bank of America, <laughs> right. you know, and I've got a fax machine behind me. And the, the uh, um, promoter in, uh, in England is faxing me the radio reports. And they've got these quotes in them from John Peel about, oh, so they 
did that as a little service so you could see if he said positive things. And I would just get these faxes and look at them and go, it's so bizarre. John Peel's making my record and here I am sitting at a desk, you know. Um, <laughs> right. In New York at a, at a, at a bank. Right. right. So, you know, but what, what's also kind of I love to this part of the story. Peel had um, he had not been to the U.S. in many years. And in 2000, he came back to the U.S. for the first time in like 30 years. And wow. so he had um, he was coming with some kind of BBC jaunt where they were taking the it was like BBC stars of the BBC were taking the Queen Elizabeth too. It was some <laughs> taking the boat boondoggle right. thing. <laughs> he was in New York for a couple of days, and his uh, his producer got in touch with us and said, "Would you, um, you know, would you be willing to meet up with John Peel?" And I just sat in my apartment in Brooklyn, scratching my head, like. <laughs> Surely John Peel has someone more famous that he wants to like hang out with in New York, but he really wasn't like that. He was he right. was thinking like, oh, there's this we girl he's record, record I like, yeah. and let's. So we had we took him out for Indian food and drove him all around. That's we awesome. went to the Charlie Parker house and ah, cool. We drove him by CBGB so he could take a picture <laughs> of CB. I mean, it was just and it was crazy, just a crazy fun connection that we got to make with him and. I was fortunate, you know, he passed away in 2004. So, you know, for four years, we were good pals and um, visited often at Peel Acres. And and that um, support that he gave my record, I still have people to this day, you know, when we are able to play live shows, almost Mm -hmm. every single show, someone comes up and says, I first heard you on Peel. That's amazing. That's crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you did like, you did like five Peel sessions, right? Is that is that what you did? We did. Uh, you did five like five, and that's like just to do one is like such an honor, and it's you know it's just amazing. So I was gonna ask you like, what was that experience like doing a Peel session? You know, because so many famous people have done them and come through there, and you know, it's just to be part of that is amazing. What was that like? You know, um, it was it was incredible. That we did two from Made of Vale Studios in. Um, in London, which is a big complex of BBC studios. I mean, it had a huge, amazing, like, room to record an orchestra, these, you know, just incredible spaces. Pardon me. (laughs) It's New York City. It's New York City. They're kind of loud out there tonight, Friday night. Um, So we did a couple of sessions at Maida Vale, and then we got invited to do a session from John's house um, in in, uh, East Anglia, which he called Peel Acres. And he did, he'd gotten to the point where he could, you know, BBC would let him do shows from home. I think he did four or five shows a week. So he did two or three of them from home. And so uh, we were invited to his house and played there three times. So uh, it was just really amazing. What what was so um, incredible is that after the fact that, you know, after you play your session, especially when we were at Peel's house, he and his family had welcomed you there and they would just have already, you know, the bottles of wine were out and he would just, (laughs) he would be like, and I I relate to this, like after you're done with the radio show, you have all this adrenaline and so you want to hang out and visit. So we hung out with him for hours and he told amazing stories about the faces and Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney (laughs) and and just all this, you know, incredible stuff so um you know that that uh hospitality he showed us was really even more special than you know having played us on the radio 
yeah, there's something to be said for the hang afterwards, right? As yeah. we all know, as musicians, that's that's a that's like a. I think I like that more than the show, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But speaking of amazing experiences, I wanted to talk about another one. You know that you had, uh, at least from my viewpoint, in 2008, you you appeared as a guest on. Elvis Costello's sort of short-lived but amazing music TV program called Spectacle. And you guys perform together. So I just have to like stop right there and ask like, what is it like to sing with Elvis Costello? Because it's got to be surreal. It it was surreal. And it was, I have to say, I was very nervous because um, that program was so, I mean, it's such a huge operation to record a a tv show entirely i mean they weren't broadcasting it live but they were recording it in real time as if it were a live show it was at the apollo right it was at the apollo and um it was not to add any extra pressure to anything right exactly um and it was a, a james taylor was the main musical guest and so elvis was singing this was something he did he would cover a song um that his guests had had a hit with or something so Mm -hmm. he picked the james taylor song bartender's blues and uh asked me to come sing the harmony on it so it was amazing um very exciting uh intimidating i remember they were trying to get us to sing it on one mic but there was absolutely no time to like do a monitor check or anything figure out the monitors i could not hear to save my life so they did about five seconds of that and they were like yep laura's gonna need her own mic i was like thank you so much (laughs) and he's like Um, loud right is he not a loud singer he's a very loud singer in fact that was something that was shocking to me because i've seen him perform a lot and i know he's i know what he sounds like but he's such a uh you know there's a lot of sound coming out Mm -hmm. and i was like hard to hear yourself for sure very very hard standing next to you yeah so it was a um it was a great opportunity and a great experience. And I, I'm, you know, still amazed that we got to do that. It's crazy. And he's a fan too, because I mean, he, he loves your stuff, right? I mean, that's, it's. He had been, well, we had opened a tour for him uh, back in 2002 and stayed in touch with him. And uh, he, he and Diana Krall um, have twins that are just about two months or three months younger than my daughter, Bella. So um, you know, I had, we'd been, had little kids at the same time and I'd sent them books, you know, we just had <laughs> tried to stay in touch and, right. and be, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of, I've been a fan of his since I was basically sure. in high school. So, um, yeah, it's a big, big, huge honor. And I still amazed. Yeah. Crazy. He's, he's it's a legend and, you know, just to, to have that, to have that experience is, is awesome. You know, I wanted to talk about, one of your other heroes, um, I believe it's one of your heroes, uh, in 2011, you released your, your fourth long player, uh, Kitty Wells' Dresses, and it's a record you made in honor of pioneering female country singer Kitty Wells. Now, for those who might not be familiar, would you mind talking a little bit about Kitty, um, what her music means to you, and why you sort of decided to take on that project? I know, again, another hero of yours, I think, right? Absolutely. Kitty Wells um, is the first female artist in country music to get to make her own album, to have, a, a, you know, whatever they call it, a million-selling record, chart-topping mm-hmm. record um, that was 
I don't know, broke some sales records because it was it was an answer song called uh, It Wasn't God Who Made Honky Tonk Angels. It was an answer song to um, to a tune called The Wild Side of Life that had been a hit by a guy named Hank Thompson. And, but the Really? Wow. I didn't know. I didn't know that. I knew the yeah. song, but I didn't know that was an answer song. Oh, wow. It's cool. an answer song. It's got the same melody as that tune. And the um, answer song, though, was far and beyond a more huge hit mm-hmm. uh, because I think it did tap into some kind of zeitgeist in, you know, of the moment where women were, um, you know, kind of starting to become more independent and say, hey, you know, you can't blame women for all the ills of society. (laughs) And certainly not every broken marriage is some woman's fault. So so it was a kind of a pushback moment. Um, Mm -hmm. And Kitty Wells herself, she was a very soft-spoken and I would almost call her like demure she to to me she reminded me of of like women in my family um, you know my dad's family um you know very southern in that sort of stoic way where you don't Mm -hmm. talk about a lot of things um so to have her in song be so forthright um in saying uh you know in sort of just portraying a woman's point of view in song and Mm -hmm. doing it pretty forcefully was very powerful and she had a singing style that is to to people's ears now it's very old-fashioned but it also reminds me of kind of this southern character where it's not overly embellished or um um you know, it's not a demonstrative style where you do a lot of acrobatic things with the vocal. Instead, um, there's a lot of tight, like, um, it's almost like the emotions kind of straining to break through the sound of her voice. And so there's this kind of, she has a very, very um, hard uh, vibrato in her Mm -hmm. voice that is kind of brings that to mind for me. So I always thought she was fascinating. She was very demure lady, very much a traditional, you know, she was marketed as the the perfect housewife who also <laughs> happens to make records and be the queen of country music country and she, music right she had you know kitty wells recipe book and there would be these you know in media of the day there would be kitty wells at home and it would be her mm-hmm. like in an apron behind the vacuum cleaner you know <laughs> like cleaning the house before going to the gig and it was just you know obviously right. a lot of that was just how they were trying to sell her but to me i thought like wow for the reality was much more that, you know, she and her husband were both artists. They, he had, his band, the um, Tennessee Mountain Boys, had been very successful, um, but they had worked hard for, towards having successful records. It was almost kind of an afterthought that she recorded the song that became this huge hit. But once she Mm -hmm. had that hit, her husband planned along with her to buck some conventional wisdom that con- that female artists were not major artists. They just didn't, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason, that was the conventional wisdom that they couldn't sell tickets. They couldn't have their own albums. They were just f- occasionally featured, not right, the right. main uh, attraction. And he maybe not trying to be a feminist supporter, but m- more so looking at the, you know, the records they were selling he decided hey kitty's selling way more records than we are we're <laughs> going to put her name on the top of the bill and right, we're going right. to wow. we're, we're going to i'm going to now take my career and and put it sec in the secondary spot and to help her develop her career it was a really radical thing that they did in the 50s sure, they yeah. actually went against all the 
the conventional wisdom of the time. And to chase that lifestyle was not glamorous or easy or, um, you know, so to me, she's kind of this pioneer who, you know, because of maybe the style of her music now sounds kind of antiquated. They don't, people pay lip service to what she did, but they don't always hear in her music how radical she was. And I, that's why I wanted to make a record. Um, I chose some songs that, you know, she would do a song that she and her husband wrote together. It's called I Don't Claim to Be an Angel. And it's all about having had premarital sex, you know. <laughs> right. And this is like 1953, and you right. can't say that, you know. So right. it's pretty crazy for it's the time, very, for sure. Right. It's very much, you know, I've, I've, my life is full of sin, you know, the song says. So it's, it's code. And it's code that they got away with it, and it's you right, know, right. that. So it's an it's fascinating to me, and I I just always give Kitty a lot of props. I was able to meet her when I was making. I'd, I'd really? met her actually because it, when I was a little kid, we lived down the street from her. But because oh, um, wow. she and her husband never like they lived always in this modest ranch house in East Nashville, but you knew you were in the neighborhood because you could see there's a bus parked outside of the <laughs> right. house. It says Kitty Wells on the side. Um, but so I got to meet her and her husband. He, he was, you know, um, probably uh, maybe a year before he died and a couple years mm-hmm. before she passed away and just present them with this project. And that's fantastic. Them, and it was really one of the most like sweet kind of moments of my career making music because I really had, um, you know, I'd written a song about her and then I'd paid Mm -hmm. this tribute to her and they were so sweet and gracious and um, just really grateful, you know, that somebody had kind of gotten their story. It was really sweet. So, yeah, it's nice to know that, you know, when somebody gets it and, you know, gets your life's work and puts it back to you and in front of you, like, hey, you know, you've really inspired me. And, you know, it's, it's, it's great when that happens. And, you know, it sounds like they appreciated your, Acknowledging it. Now, I wanted to also touch on one last thing, which we haven't, well, we, you've touched on it a little bit, but um, the sort of your other parallel career, which is radio, um, you know, in addition to your travels as a singer-songwriter, um, you've spent an extensive amount of time on the airwaves as a DJ, you know, slash presenter from your college radio days, like you said, uh, on through the show you created, The Radio Thrift Shop, uh, which you mentioned. Uh, up to your work today with the programs Dark Horse Radio and States of Country, um, I was curious, like, what is it about your love of this medium? You know, what is it about this medium that you love so much? And why, along with singing and playing, it, it seems like it's sort of remained a constant in your life. So I was curious to, you know, hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's, it, it is interesting. You know, I hadn't paid attention to, I, I guess I'd always been a radio listener. I did listen to you know, had a little radio in my room when I was a kid and I would listen to it while I did my homework sometimes. And I knew, um, you know, I'd heard the Grand Ole Opry. We had some early um, morning radio in Nashville that was very particular to Nashville. Um, it was called The Waking Crew. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was all studio musicians who would, you know, play on records. Uh, but mm-hmm. they had kind of like a pop band where they would do like back rack tunes and they'd have, you know, a singer in who maybe was just getting started on a label and it was very loose and so I had had like experiences you know appreciating radio like that um but I hadn't thought about doing it myself until of course at Columbia when when the 
opportunity came to hang out at WKCR. And then, um, you know, I really appreciated what they did was such a high quality, um, deep, these deep dives into music Mm -hmm. careers and catalog. And, um, it was such a great place to learn, um, and to sort of study how other people were doing that. Um, and then I realized pretty quickly, a lot of that also, I will just give a big shout out to my, my, uh, friend, Phil Schapp, who's still on the air at KCR, um, and has been, you know, he's the longtime jazz DJ there who's taught a lot of students over the years about, you know, just even through his own enthusiasm, like what's kind of important in the music and what's, um, you know, how do you tell the story of it to generation that hasn't heard it yet? You know, those kind of things were, were really exciting to watch him do back in the eighties when I was a student. So, um, I, I didn't, I hadn't thought about making radio myself until coming and seeing that at KCR, but I realized there was nobody doing that same type of serious, um, sort of exploration of the music for country music there. So I would, I just kind of modeled myself on what Phil and the other people in the jazz department were doing, but just did it with country records instead. Interesting. Wow. But it, it was a great way to, you know, kind of, um, just, get started. It was a great model to have. And then I, what I realized pretty quickly was that it wasn't scary. There was something, you know, it's still to me slightly scary to get up and sing in front of people, but somehow sitting down and talking about records that I like, (laughs) or trying to explain to people the change in a, or the evolution of a style of country music, or what's important about this particular artist, why you played these records. That to me wasn't, it came very naturally. And so I've just, um, continued to do it all these years. Um, you know, I've struggled sometimes, you know, would have probably stayed on FMU if I hadn't had a kid and, mm. <laughs> and all life, sudden, life intrudes. Yeah. Right. All the, you know, all the, um, you know, real life things that you take up your time, but in the last few years being able to do, uh, you know, the gimme country show, which is a streaming app. And so you can, uh, you know, just download it on your phone and listen. Uh, but that's, yeah, I mostly do that from home, but it's still like the joyfulness of being able to like pick some records you're excited about new artists, um, you know, uh, stay, it helps me sort of stay contemporary with what's going on in, in mm-hmm. the Americana world. And, um, and it's fun to do it. So, and, and, and it creates a community, you know, that, that, uh, or, or it allows me to connect with a community where people who appreciate it um, now that, I mean, we were starting to do this back at FMU where you'd have like the playlist going and people commenting while the show is going mm-hmm. on. You're mm-hmm. starting to, to interact with the community instead of it being this one way thing. But I do appreciate that as well. And it often gives me ideas, stuff I hadn't thought of. And so, um, and you know, the it's funny in my house, my daughter, She's 14 now, but when she was about 10, she was an absolute crazy nut for the Beatles. And her favorite Beatle was George Harrison. You told her right. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say I had nothing to do with it. I I wish I could claim it, but her her music teacher in elementary school would uh, use um, the, is it Yellow Submarine, the, the, Mm cartoon they yeah. would if they if they had like 10 minutes left of class and she didn't have something prepared she'd put on yellow submarine that's cool so all the kids knew that film and bella it just got bella obsessed so but her fatal favorite beetle was george harrison so when i got the opportunity to be the host of the george harrison show for the beatles channel at sirius xm uh that was also another big you know kind of 
Yeah. Sweet, sweet for me. My daughter still to this day thinks I'm not qualified because I don't, <laughs> I don't have um, all the George knowledge that she does. Oh, I but see. I fortunately, see. the show itself is um, the content's really run by the Harrison Archive. Um, so it's really I've learned a lot doing that program also. So you know, if if that's as long as long as it all fits, you know, we can mm-hmm. juggle it all. Like I'm I'm really quite happy to have that as another way to express, you know, my interest in love for music. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you're a fan. You know, that's the one thing I find with some musicians, they lose the the ability to be a fan and a listener. Like I loved, I listen to so much music, you know, just whatever I'm doing around the house. I, you know, I, I've, I've, I felt like I've never lost that, uh, you know, ability to be a fan. Um, whereas some musician friends of mine, you know, they're, if they're working on their own music, they, they have, you know, really no interest in listening as, you know, so I, I think it's a testament to your love of, of not only the radio, but, but, you know, music in general, uh, that you, you keep that going. Yeah. I think that, um, it's, it can be nourishing, you know, when we don't have time. I mean, and obviously I've chosen a structure for my life where, you know, I don't spend a hundred percent of my time on music, but, mm-hmm. um, in those down periods when I'm not, you know, uh, working on writing or, or outperforming or what have you, um, you know, that, that flowing in of music helps me to kind of stay, it kind of, kind of keeps sort of a, a something running in background. I hate using computer metaphors <laughs> for thinking and creativity, but there is something to be said for like, you know, a kind of, a, um, you know, letting time pass and, you're observing things over time and letting mm-hmm. them steep a little while before you're making your next expression right. with them. So that's right. been my mode. Inspiration, you know, you yeah. got it. Yeah, you've got it. You got to have some uh, some of that coming in to uh, create some of your own stuff for sure. Well, hey, Laura, thank you so much for for doing this. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, it's been, you know, really fun listening to your thoughts on things uh, throughout, you know, your career and and allowing us to sort of follow along with your creative journey. Thank you again and much continued success. But before we let you go, you're going to do a song for us, right? Um, I was curious what the name of the tune was and uh, maybe you could, you know, tell us a little something about the tune. I'd be happy to. So, yes, I wanted to do a song that I wrote with one of my neighbors here in Jackson Heights. And actually, you know, one of the things... I'll just backtrack to say my husband and I, when we moved to Jackson Heights from Williamsburg, we were a little bit trepidatious about leaving Brooklyn. We had so many Mm -hmm. associations with like places we played in Brooklyn and all of our music friends were there. And we were, you know, somewhat, uh, uh, you know, kind of comforted by the fact that so many musicians have lived in these neighborhoods in Queens along the seven train over many years, you know, people who played, uh, you know, in, uh, show music and Broadway and jazz musicians. Mm-hmm. And we live pretty close to the Louis Armstrong house. And, yeah. um, it, you know, the Queens jazz trail out here, it's really something to be proud of, but, um, there also are so many great, uh, local musicians in Queens these days. So my friend, Franklin Bruno, who's a writer, uh, and a singer songwriter, um, and an artist himself lives a couple blocks 
over and he's somebody who primarily composes on keyboards mm -hmm. and i had not i've as we mentioned at the beginning of the show i never felt comfortable enough to write on the piano because i stopped my <laughs> music education <laughs> too quickly um on the keyboards but so we collaborated on this song that i'd like to play for you guys called someday sparrow and uh unfortunately you're just going to hear me playing guitar but when you for those of you who maybe know chord progressions you might recognize a few moves here that aren't normal progressions that you would play on a guitar neck so cool. um anyway my for me and franklin bruno from jackson heights someday sparrow awesome well thank you again and uh let's get right to it so uh here's laura cantrell on queen's creative Thanks to Laura Cantrell for visiting Queen's Creative and taking the time out to talk with us. To learn more about Laura and her work, visit lauracantrell.com. 
That's L-A-U-R-A-C-A-N-T-R-E-L-L.com. Well, there you have it, folks. That's it for this episode of QC. I don't know about you kids, but I had a lot of fun today. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods, and please visit Queen's Public Television on the web at qptv.org. QPTV can also be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash queenspublictelevision and on Twitter and Instagram, we're at QPTV. Queen's Creative was produced, written, recorded, and mixed by yours truly. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Bacino. Till next time, take care, people. <laughs>